You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan. Broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Hello, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. And believe it or not, alcohol is currently the third leading cause of preventable deaths in the United States. And over 100,000 people die each year from drug overdoses. Uh, Tennessee ranks number two in the nation for opioid use. And East Tennessee has the highest opioid consumption in the state. So addiction has reached epidemic proportions over the past decade. What is Knoxville doing to help combat this challenge? Our guest today is Karen Pershing. Uh, She is the executive director of the Metro Drug Coalition. She is a certified prevention specialist and received her master's degree in public health from the University of Tennessee. She's a 30-plus year veteran of public health. She has devoted her career to improving the health of families in the Knoxville area. And in her role, Karen works with local and state policymakers to advocate for laws that help prevent substance misuse and its consequences. Good morning, Karen. Welcome back to More Living. Good morning, Jim. It's good to be here. It's great to have you back. Um, talk a little bit about your path, Karen, and what led you to focusing on drug and alcohol misuse and really pursuing that as your career in health. Yeah, well, um, again, I have a long history of being in public health. And three of those years when I was at the Knox County Health Department, I actually did drug prevention work, and that was in the early 90s. And so those three years, I say, were my biggest personal and professional growth years. Um, And so when the opportunity came up in 2010 um, to take the reins at the Metro Drug Coalition, I was extremely interested in getting back into the field. Uh, Personally, I can say that, you know, I've been touched by substance misuse in my family. Um, I had, you know, an uncle growing up who's now in recovery from alcohol use disorder, but I saw when he was struggling, you know, the impact it had on, on his family and then also had a stepfather who also struggled with alcohol use disorder. And so I don't think there's many people out there who can't say that they haven't had a friend or family member that they have seen struggle and the impact it has. It has a ripple effect on, you know, the family, workplace, entire community. Yeah, and I was just thinking that while you were talking, Karen, that, you know, I think just about all of us have been affected in some way or form or fashion. Um, You know, it's interesting because in that intro, you know, I kind of gave some statistics, but just uh, boots on the ground, 
How big of an issue is it here in East Tennessee? Should we separate alcohol and drug abuse misuse in terms of? I mean, I mean, they're both misuse of substances. Um, but do you separate those and consider those two different types of impacts or two different? That's probably not the right way to say it, but two different things. Well, when I'm actually out in the community, I'm so glad you started with alcohol because alcohol is the most commonly misused drug in our society in the United States. And some of that is because it's it's socially integrated and just part of our culture. And so um, it's not frowned upon as much as the illicit substance use is. And so there's yeah, and I guess that's kind of where of I was trying to get. I think yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's this level of acceptance, and so people tend to suffer with alcohol use disorder for many more years before they admit they have a problem than someone who maybe is using cocaine and heroin. And so the the deaths, though, what's interesting about alcohol is. Many times it, it may take 30, 40 years for someone to die from long-term effects of chronic um, alcohol use, um, but they're going to die from liver disease or heart disease, and so their death is going to be categorized as liver failure or cardiovascular disease and not death, a death from alcohol use disorder. So when you die of a drug overdose, say from fentanyl, which is what we're seeing now, that's going to be classified as a drug overdose and a drug-related death. And so the the way we collect data and the way um, death certificates are, are coded really um, mask uh, the impact alcohol use has, has on our community and society. Yes, so um, Karen, define for us, how is alcohol use disorder defined? Well, again, it, it becomes a chronic use issue where um, despite the negative consequences, you continue to have to use um, in order to keep going. So, um, again, it's many times people face consequences before they actually stop using. Some people go to jail. Some people have DUIs. Some people go through a divorce. You know, it rips the family apart. And so it's how many of those negative consequences have to add up uh, before they actually realize that they've got a problem. So it, it becomes a brain disease, Jim, uh, where the brain is actually telling you, I need more and more of this substance, whatever the substance of choice is. We, we just came out of the holidays, Karen. Um, is there an uptick typically, I would imagine there is, in both drug and alcohol use over the holidays and into the winter months for that matter? Uh, yes, it's interesting because um, I was looking at there's an overdose death kind of um, dashboard that we follow. And those are suspected. They're not confirmed. But it gives us an indicator of what's going on today. And um, January is already at uh, 20 overdose deaths for the month of January, and we're on the 20th now. So that's, you know, average of one death per day. And, um, now, that's in what region? Alcohol. Like how big of a region Now, that's is that? just Knox County. That's, that's just, just Knox County, County, not even the surrounding counties? Yes. No, no wow. that's just us. 
So, um, so we have a significant issue going on here. Um, and then you add alcohol on top of that. Um, again, usually during the holidays, people, you know, tend to drink more. They go to more parties. Um, they host parties where alcohol is present. And again, here's an interesting trend that I've been seeing, um, and I don't have data around it, but just looking on and being connected on social media with so many people in the area. Uh, this whole idea of dry January is really seems to be taking off where individuals are deciding I'm going to not use alcohol the month of January. Uh, to detox my system is what a lot of them are saying. So it's like we recognize that our bodies, right, this is not something our bodies necessarily want and desire and actually makes us feel worse. So people have been posting how much better they feel uh, since they have not been consuming alcohol. And so I think people putting those challenges out there publicly and saying I'm doing dry January and here's how I'm doing and here's how I'm feeling um, kind of creates an opportunity for other people to say, hey, I don't necessarily have to drink either. Um, so again, I, I like seeing things like that, Jim, because it gives me hope that people realize that there are other ways to cope with life um, and life's challenges other than picking up a drug or alcohol um, and using that to mask really what's going on or to hide symptoms of depression, anxiety, those types of things. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the dry January. I think what I hear you saying, Karen, is, you know, anything that can raise awareness, see other people talking about how good they feel. Um, How can we take the, the, the... the impact of that, though, from January and, and carry that through the entire year and, and remember well, that. Yeah. I, again, I think just if you – any habit that you want to change, you know, normally they say four to six weeks of doing something consistently and regularly can change habits. So, again, I think as we come out of January, continue to educate and encourage individuals you know, to to continue that beyond January and, and to also look at, you know, hosting some gatherings and events where you don't have alcohol um, and create a new norm. Uh, because, again, I think that's what it's going to take is we've got to shift cultural norms around alcohol and that alcohol shouldn't be the focal point of all of our celebrations. We're visiting with Karen Pershing. She's with the Metro Drug Coalition, and we're talking about alcohol and drug uh, misuse. And when we come back, we're going to kind of drive, dive into uh, drug, drug misuse, specifically things like opioids, certainly what's going on with fentanyl in East Tennessee. And we'll talk, uh, try to just raise our overall awareness of what's going on and what we can do to be helping in the area. So stay with us. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. 
Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. This morning we're visiting with Karen Pershing. She's the executive director with the Metro Drug Coalition. And we're talking about actually the third leading cause of preventable deaths in the United States, which is alcohol misuse. And also we're talking about drug misuse. And... You know, typically, Karen, when we think of things like drug use, alcohol misuse, we don't normally think of things like white-collar business people, stay-at-home moms, grandparents. What are some myths about addiction? Um, I think the biggest myth is just what you mentioned, (laughs) Jim, um, is I think most people's perception of someone who has a substance use disorder or including alcohol, is that they're homeless, um, they're not working, um, and they're somewhat of a drain on society, so to speak. Um, and, and so what we know is that 65 to 70% of individuals with a, with a substance use disorder are actually employed. And so they're working beside you <laughs> every day. Um, but their amount of drug use continues to increase over time. And so the the opportunity to engage at the workplace and be able to offer services to individuals who may be struggling is an extremely important um, thing that employers need to understand is that they have people, you know, entering through their doors every day, um, struggling with some sort of alcohol or substance use. And so being able to meet them where they are, help them get the resources that they need to get better, um, will help strengthen your business. Let's talk a little, Karen, about the opioid crisis. Uh, First off, give us us a, a quick overview of what are opioids and how big is the crisis today? Well, um, opioids are causing 75% of our overdose deaths right now. So they're an extremely, um, they're potent drugs. There are pharmaceutical grade opioids, which are things like oxycontin, hydrocodone, uh, very commonly used in the healthcare system, uh, which is really what began our opioid crisis. Um, back in the 90s. So they started increasing the amount of prescriptions, the number of days they were prescribing these medications. Um, And so people got physically dependent. Some people get physically dependent and never get addicted um, and can get off them but go through a physiological withdrawal. And others, you know, tend to get the brain disease called addiction Um, which requires even more um, intervention in order to get them back on the right path. So so we had this wave of prescription drug abuse that really led us to the heroin crisis. Um, Now what we're seeing is fentanyl. And so fentanyl, for um, people who are listening, there is a pharmaceutical grade of fentanyl, which is very powerful and used primarily for people who are, you know, cancer patients in hospice care. So people who are in excruciating pain, and that's the way to relieve their pain um, and suffering. But it's not used um, 
very commonly, um, at least in the medical profession, it's very specific because of its potency. What has happened is uh, drug dealers have created um, what we call analogs of our prescription fentanyl, and there's all different types, and they continue to get stronger and stronger. So they're manufactured in clandestine labs, brought across the border, um, Drug dealers are mixing fentanyl and pretty much everything that's out there on the street right now, including pressed pills that are made to look like pharmaceutical-grade drugs. So that's the biggest concern that we see, too, is you don't know what you're buying off the street. And so if you're buying a pill that looks like a Xanax, it may not be a Xanax. It may be 100% fentanyl. Um, which is why we're seeing so many overdose deaths. Uh, there's several things you bring up there that I want to kind of dive into. Let's start with just opioids in general, uh, especially yeah. in the healthcare industry. You know, they're painkillers essentially, and right. many times when we have a surgery, it's maybe an orthopedic surgery, maybe. Maybe somebody has an open heart surgery, um, people that have chronic back pain, um, or maybe have a back surgery. You know, typically uh, doctors do prescribe, in many cases, some sort of an, sort of an opioid. Um, ha, you know, how, how can we do a good job at prevention when somebody is in intense pain and needs help and pain relief, um, you know, how, how does our healthcare industry balance that? And if I'm a consumer that has surgery and I'm prescribed a painkiller afterwards, how do I need to handle something like that? Yeah, so Jim, you bring up a very good point. Um, opioids, the way they work in the brain is they actually block the pain receptors. So they're not actually doing anything to attack the source of your pain, they're just blocking your brain and those pain receptors from actually you recognizing that pain, if that makes sense. So there are alternatives to opioids and alternative therapies that can be used. Um, one of those, you know, you look at acetaminophen. Acetaminophen, which is Tylenol or, you know, high-potent Tylenol, you can get extra strength, but it actually reduces inflammation. So a lot of times after you've had a surgery, your the area, the surgical area has been aggravated to a certain extent, and it's swollen, and it's it's angry. <laughs> and so if you can reduce that swelling and you can look at um, doing things to relieve that pain, then that's actually going to work better than an opioid. But people don't understand the difference between those those things. Um, and well, again, how come I our medical, pro- but then what about the responsibility of the medical professionals? I mean, it seems like there's times when they're going to prescribe it because they feel like it's necessary and that it's something like acetaminophen or ibuprofen is not strong enough. Right, and and they're going to do that. And But what they need to do is make sure they talk to the patient about how powerful those medications are and that they need to prescribe them for the shortest amount of time possible. Yeah. So, again, if you think the first 
three days after your procedure is when a person's going to be in the most pain, and then they can switch to an acetaminophen-type medication. Um, go ahead and just give them three days' worth. Don't give them 30 days' worth. And so I think there's been a lot of change in the medical community. Are we where we need to be yet? Not quite. But, well, but I know it, it's, we it's are kind seeing of, them being more cautious. Than yeah, it's kind of scary to think about. I know a couple of years ago I had to have an appendectomy. I had to have my appendix out. And... Uh-huh. Uh, I got a, a, a very low gr- dose, a very low dose and low uh, potent prescription, and it was for one of the opioids. I don't remember which one. Um, and yeah. I literally, when I came home from the hospital that afternoon, I took one dose, and the next morning I was like, "I'm not going to mess with this. It scares the heck out of me." So yeah. I just think we have to. But some people, you know, I was able to do that. Uh, my pain wasn't intense enough, but I guess some people, their pain is so intense, you know, it puts them in a tough situation, right? It does, and I think, you know, we all have different tolerances for pain, too, mm-hmm. so you bring up a very good point, you know. Um, but I also think we bought into this mindset of we should never feel pain, and so pain is really a part of life. Um, and That's a yes, good point. there's there's debilitating pain, right, where you can't function at all. Um, but then there's those irritating things, you know, that happen. Well, you know, I strain my back. Um, my back really hurts. Can I put some heat on it? Can I do some stretching exercises? Can I do some things to help relieve that low back pain? Chiropractic care. Uh, low back pain is the number one cause of people's first introduction into opioid therapy. And so, again, if we can take that common problem and we can direct people into looking at physical therapy, chiropractic care, other things like that, Jim, um, heat therapy, cold therapy, those types of things, meditation is wonderful to help with pain as well. Women are taught that when they're going through or going to have a baby is you go through classes where you learn how to manage your pain and you learn how to breathe and you learn how to focus on something other than the pain to make that the pain receptors less likely to tell you you're, you're, you know, in excruciating pain. Um, So it's really interesting how we want to take a pill for everything to fix everything. And so I think we as consumers have to own that and have to look at what are some other things, what can I do to help relieve my own discomfort and pain? I think that's a great point because our, our, society really in the united states we want the quick and easy thing and we want to just take a pill and move on and the reality is if we put time into some of these other things you're talking about whether it's physical therapy or chiropractic care or just stretching regularly or doing yoga i mean i was Mm -hmm. i've told my wife i almost never feel better than when i do a yoga session one of these do-it-yourself things through you know on online and yet how often do I do that? I don't do it a ton, and yet I feel so much better after I've done it because, as most men are, you know, we're very tight, especially on the backside of our bodies, and yet 
we want the quick and easy solution instead of having to plan for and put in the time that's necessary. Before we get to our next break, Karen, I just want to ask, what are some signs to look for if you think someone has become addicted to opioids? Well, I think the biggest thing is um, is they're going to continue to seek more and more. And so after a while, it becomes economically uh, difficult for them. So they're going to try to look for, they're going to ask for refills. For example, if it's prescription drugs, you know, they're two weeks into a 30-day supply and they're saying they're out of medication. Again, they're taking more than what the prescription was written for. So that's an early sign, um, especially around prescription drug abuse. Again, um, isolating themselves. When people start to misuse drugs or alcohol, they usually tend to to shy away from family gatherings. Um, They may have more absences at work. Again, that workplace piece, um, especially on Fridays and Mondays. Um, Again, because some people tend to binge drink or uh, use more substances on the weekend when eyes aren't on them. So pay attention to people who call in a lot on Mondays uh, because that could be a sign. They may be struggling with an alcohol or drug problem. Change in friends, um, especially at the younger ages, who they're hanging out with now. Um, Again, withdrawing for family activities. And just literally not wanting, and, and you'll notice some grooming, usually habits have changed, um, so they're not caring as much about how they look, um, how they dress, those types of things. So those are some early signs and symptoms um, that I think everything everyone can be aware of and notice and say things when you notice these things. And people are going to be defensive, so you got to say it in the right way. <laughs> We're visiting with Karen Pershing this morning here on More Living with Jim Brogan. When we come back, we're going to have more about what's going on in East Tennessee and what the Metro Drug Coalition is doing to help in East Tennessee. We're also going to have our dollars and cents segment. And I'm going to talk about an increasing problem that we see in estate planning, and that is passing down your home, which is starting to become one of the number one issues that can create problems in the family. How do you need to be thinking about your real estate in your estate plan, especially your primary home? So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. Today, we're talking with Karen Pershing. She is with the Metro Drug Coalition. She is executive director, and we're talking about drug and alcohol misuse. Before we get back to Karen, however, it is time for dollars and cents. Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. 
How do you handle passing on your home and your estate plan? This is becoming an increasingly big problem that most people are really not thinking about. And a big issue there, and a big cause for this, is the real escalation in real estate values. And we've certainly seen that here in East Tennessee. Because of that escalation, real estate in many cases is the highest valued asset owned by individuals at the death. And it, it, it's, and it that causes an increasingly important role in estate planning and passing on wealth to our kids and our loved ones. And one of the biggest issues is when you have a single property that's owned by multiple owners. It can really cause tensions between the new beneficial owners. Think about your kids. You know, husband and wife own a property. Once the second spouse has passed away, if you have multiple kids, you now have multiple people that are going to own that property. When it's in the estate, if the estate has three beneficiaries of the estate that are primary, then those three all, in effect, are going to own a part of that house. And oftentimes the kids don't see eye to eye on how to utilize the property or how or when to sell the property. And so I think one of the most important things here is we need to understand first the issue because real estate values have just skyrocketed here in East Tennessee and and in most places around the country. And I think simple planning, straightforward communication and conversation ahead of time can frankly make it or break it when it comes to leaving real estate to your kids. So I think talking about it while the parents, while you are still alive, and coming up with a plan on how you want to handle it. Because many times, you know, we may assume our kids, if we, let's say we got two or three kids, we may assume our kids want to keep our house. Or we may assume they want to sell the house. But without open communication, we don't really know that. And we may there may be surprises. Uh, also, if if the majority of our wealth is tied up in our house, and again, more and more families now with the increase in real estate values are seeing their home being their number one asset. And so when and a home is an illiquid asset. So what happens if you've got two or three kids and one kid wants to keep that home and the other the or the others don't? Well, that one child has got to buy out the other two. And there are tax ramifications to that, too. You can't just necessarily say, well, you know what, we'll let this child take the IRA or 401k asset, and we'll let this child take the house. Well, that's not, you have to be smart about that, because the house effectively is inherited tax-free. I mean, it's part of your taxable estate, but there's no capital gains or income tax to pay on the real estate, on that house. Whereas if you have an IRA or a 401k, the income tax has not been paid on most, if not all, that money. So whoever gets that is going to have to pay income tax. So you get in situations where there's disequity. And it becomes very complicated with what are tax ramifications, what are liquidity ramifications, how does one child buy out another child, especially if that is the the biggest asset and there aren't other assets on the table. 
So I think discussion and communication, getting together with your family, especially talking about the home, if you own any other real estate that is going to go to multiple people, it becomes increasingly important to talk about it ahead of time and have a plan to deal with things like tax liability and liquidity issues. That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com. Do please check us out online, BroganFinancial.com. I do want to mention also, University of Tennessee's class, Financial Survival for Retirement, is coming up. It's a two-night class. It's coming up this Thursday, so it's Thursdays. January 25th and February 1st, uh, so that'll be the next two Thursdays, and it is 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. both nights, so it's two two-hour sessions. Uh, you can go to financialsurvivalforretirement.com for more information and to click to register. You can download a syllabus, but we're going to talk about things like creating a retirement plan in these uncertain times. You know, how can you have increasing income in retirement? to keep up with inflation? How do you keep short-term market volatility from having a negative impact on your income in retirement or your ability to even retire on your terms? Uh, what, how do you invest in this climate? How can you reduce taxes? We typically have more control of our taxes in retirement than at any other time in our lives. So it's great to do tax planning especially in that sweet spot between retirement age and age 73 when we have to start taking taxable distributions from our retirement accounts. We'll talk about Social Security income. We'll talk about common mistakes made with trusts and wheels. So we'll talk about a lot of different things. If you want more information, to go to, again, you can go to financialsurvivalforretirement.com. It's coming up this Thursday, the next two Thursdays. It's a two-night session. January 25th and February 1st, 6.30 p.m. both nights. Again, financialsurvivalforretirement.com, or you can call the University of Tennessee directly at 974-0150. Again, 865-974-0150. Today we're visiting with Karen Pershing, and we're talking about the drug and alcohol epidemic we're really facing all over the country, and especially here in East Tennessee. And um, let's talk a little, you, you, you kind of started talking there about fentanyl. Uh, first off, is fentanyl considered an opioid, Karen? It is. It is, Jim. Uh, it's the most powerful opioid we're seeing right now. And it's, I think, what, 50 times more powerful than heroin? Yes. Is or the statistics times, I heard? Again, oh, wow. Depending on you know which analog um, you're talking so about. So when so you know we've heard stories about just traces of fentanyl can kill somebody. Yeah, um, and be so like drug the equivalent of little uh, grains of salt, Jim, is all it takes. Okay, so you mentioned that like drug dealers, you know, when you're buying on the street, you might be buying something that has been 
you know, is, is Xanax, but it's been, you know, it has traces of fentanyl in it. So why are drug dealers doing that it, with that level of death or, you know, mortality or potential mortality? Or is it, it, it makes everything more addictive? T- tell me what, you know, and then we hear stories about all the smuggling that's coming in from the, across our borders. What's the end game for these drug dealers? Well, it's a, it's a very complex because, you know, when fentanyl first started hitting our streets, I went, that's a really not a very good business model. Why would you kill your, your customers? But when you understand the disease of addiction, the person who has a substance use disorder is chasing that initial high. So, again, when they first start using drugs, they get a high um, that is something they've never experienced before. And so what happens over time is people no longer get high. They maintain their new normal. And so they're always looking for something stronger and better and more powerful. And so drug dealers are responding to that demand by creating these more powerful and potent drugs to market out in the community. So we actually have some people that are actually searching for fentanyl um, and want fentanyl because they've heard how powerful it is. Wow, it's awfully scary. We're visiting with Karen Pershing. She's with the Metro Drug Coalition. When we come back, we'll we'll finish up and talk about what we can be doing in East Tennessee to help with drug and alcohol prevention. So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Thanks for tuning in this week for more living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're with you every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. and again from 3 to 4 p.m. You can also catch our show podcast. You can go to my website at broganfinancial.com or you can go to your favorite app, you know, podcast. You can go to whether it's Apple or uh, Spotify or whatever it is and just type in more living and you can listen to our podcasts. Uh, my first class of this of this 2024 financial survival for retirement a two-part class coming up this thursday so it's the next two thursdays january 25th and february 1st financial survival for retirement.com the course is at 6 30 p.m at the downtown ut conference center um, you can also uh, call the university of tennessee at 974-0150 i'd love to see you there we're talking about drug and alcohol misuse. We're visiting with Karen Pershing. She's the executive director of the Metro Drug Coalition. And let's talk a little bit about um, just some commonsensical things or questions we may have to help with prevention or recognition of issues. Karen, um, modern pain medication does have benefits when it comes to pain relief after surgery, medical procedures. Oftentimes, we'll have some leftover pain pills once we have recovered. What is the best way to dispose of those extra pills? Yes, Jim, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, we actually have medication disposal um, opportunities every day in our community. So many of our 24 
our pharmacies, such as Walgreens, CVS, have medication drop boxes. And so they're in the lobby usually uh, around the pharmacy area. Go in there, drop your um, medications in that drop box, and then those are incinerated um, in an environmentally safe way, but there's no opportunity for anyone to divert those medications. So they're kind of they're designed like our blue post office boxes that you see out in the community um, where you can put things in, but you can't get things out. Um, and so that's a great way to dispose of it. We have disposal events um, where we move around different uh so north, south, east, the west of the community, um, every at least twice a year. Sometimes we do them four times a year. Um, but we'll announce those and usually do some media around it so you can bring any medications, and those are usually on Saturdays um, to those events that we have, and we'll make sure um, that they're disposed of safely. Uh, do not flush them down the toilet, which is what they used to tell you to do years ago, Um, but there are traces, there can be traces of medications in our water supply if you do that. Um, You can use kitty litter or coffee grounds to neutralize the medication and then throw it in, um, in the trash, but we highly recommend, again, that you take them to a disposal um, so that they're completely out of the environment. So that's one thing to do. If you have them in the home, Jim, this is extremely important, and you haven't disposed of them yet, make sure that they're in a secure place, especially if you have children in your home. Absolutely. Um, switching back to alcohol, mm-hmm. when, you know, we have a few drinks at dinner with friends, when does it become a concern? What are some good tips on how to approach friends and family when we become concerned? Um, well, the biggest thing to do is to just, in a loving, caring way, point out um, that you have a concern and that you're concerned about their well-being. Um, again, some people may not welcome those comments, but I think if it's someone we love and we care about, We have an obligation to do so, regardless of how they're going to receive that message. Again, I think if you, if you put it in, in a context of, you know, I care about you, I'm concerned about you, um, here's what I notice, um, and, and see how they respond. Again, you may totally, they may get angry at you and you have to be prepared for that. But at the same time, um, I would rather, say something to someone, then continue to let them spiral um, and and even have a bigger problem. Karen, the Metro Drug Coalition, talk about some upcoming events you have. Tell us what's going on. Sure. Um, well, we're around in the community doing prevention, harm reduction, and recovery work. Um, and so that's an ongoing thing. If anyone has an interest in um, having us come and present, you know, we do a lot of training, mental health first aid. Again, we know there's a link between substance use disorders and mental health. So we offer trainings around mental health and recognizing early signs and symptoms that someone may be struggling with their mental health so that they can get help for that and hopefully not turn to alcohol or drugs. Um, we have 
an East Tennessee opioid conference coming up on the 22nd of February. That conference is a full-day conference. It's really directed towards healthcare professionals, but we do have a lot of community members that also attend that conference. So if you're interested in that, just go to metrodrug.org, and there is a tab at the top of the page uh, with a link to the conference information. Uh, coming up in March. So that's uh, I tell you, uh, Karen. I'm sorry, yeah. we're out of time. But but yeah. the easiest way oh, to no follow problem. metro metrodrug.org. Yes, sir. Okay, metrodrug.org. So Karen Pershing, executive director of the Metro Drug Coalition. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about this very important issue. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate you allowing me to be here with you today. Absolutely. That's Karen Pershing. We've been talking about drug and alcohol misuse in, the, in East Tennessee because a greater community can provide for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Many thanks to Jennifer for engineering the show. Thanks to Jill for helping produce the show. Thank you for tuning in this week. Check out all of our upcoming events at BroganFinancial.com. You've been listening to More Living with Jim Brogan only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Have a very blessed and warm weekend.